Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Ramsey, thank you so much for joining District of Conservation. It's good to have you on this side of the microphone after being on your show recently. Gabrielle, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you introduce yourself to my listeners? You're really well known in the hunting industry. Some of my listeners may not, however, be familiar with your work, but talk about your upbringing and and why you became a waterfowler, if you can. My name is Ramsey Russell. I live in Brandon, Mississippi, born and raised in Mississippi. I know my accent may may uh, may throw you off a little bit. Uh, I, I, I grew up uh, in a hunting family. My grandfather grew up in that generation uh, where hunting wasn't a passion. It wasn't an obsession. It was just something grown men did that they grew up doing. They, they loved to do. They, they worked. His priority in life was work. And he went to duck camp and he went to hunting camp with his friends. And uh, and I grew up in that environment. Now, the interesting thing about it is I didn't I never hunted with my grandfather. I dove hunted with him. That was my introduction was going out to a hot, dusty Mississippi dove field Labor Day weekend and standing next to my granddad, a little boy about belt high and trying to outrun his, his dog to pick pick up the birds later in life, about eight, nine years old. He started introducing me to actually shooting, but I never got to duck hunt with him. His health failed uh, before we could ever go duck hunting together. He was a part of that generation, Gabby, that didn't take children to duck camp. It was where grown men went and ate and drank and played cards and talked about men things. It wasn't until about 15, 16, I guess, that, that he started bringing the kids along, and which time he had uh, he had quit duck hunting. And, and But I grew up. My, my my fondest memories of my grandfather was sitting around his kitchen table before and after dinner and him telling stories, especially if my dad or my uncle or some of the other grown men in town were there, the stories they told. And it and it captivated me. You know, it just it absolutely captivated me. I was much older. I was eighteen years old. I was nineteen years old. Out of high school, my grandfather had died. Uh, when I was deer hunting one time in, in, a, in a spot of Mississippi that's really not known for ducks. And late after late after sundown, some ducks flew into a, a swamp I was hunting, and the next day I was there waiting on them, not knowing anything about uh, normal shooting time or anything, and uh, and shot a few ducks, and something started. You know, uh, I still a deer hunter. I was still just a, a general-type hunter jump shot ducks i ended up working down in texas as a intern 
Well, I was in the wildlife program at Mississippi State University, and 107,000-acre ranch not far from the Mexican border. We were growing trophy white-tailed deer, one of the most preeminent free-range ranches uh, in North America at the time, certainly in, in Texas. And, so, you know, my job description was shooting deer, you know, shooting antlerless deer and, and guiding deer hunts and stuff. And on that big ranch, there was a lot of stock tanks. And every time the wind blew north in November and December, those little wetlands would fill up with ducks. And and every time we did drop a, a, a disc to plant food plots and do stuff, the the wild uh, we disking under wild goat weed and wild sunflowers, and in come the doves. And I really, it's crazy, but at that stage of my life, I wanted to be a deer biologist. And I go all the way down to South Texas and and start working in that field. And all these birds come back. You know, in my free time, I'm shooting bobwhite quail and morning doves, and then the ducks on the tanks. And uh, I went back to college after that intern program, and one of my fraternity brothers invited me to come to Arkansas and shoot ducks with him in in flooded timber, public land. Times were different then, boy. We had to beat folks to the duck hole, but it wasn't like it is now. And that really... The, the limit, Gabby, was two. The two mallards was the limit. And we were getting up at three and four in the morning and going out in that timber and, and calling those ducks in. And that really set my life on an orbit I've never looked back from. And I, and I you know, uh, it. so it goes back to my family. It goes back generational to my stories. But at the same time, finding it, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just one step at a time. You know, here I am, a Mississippi boy going to Arkansas, shooting a few ducks coming back shooting ducks in Mississippi. And then at some point in time, I realized, man, the world's a whole lot bigger than my backyard. And and that hasn't, that you know, I tell folks a lot of times, it's been 20 years since we founded GetDucks.com, which is a preeminent uh, wing shooting service. Uh, we, we orchestrate duck hunts on six continents. And... Um, But I never, it kind of started by accident. All I really did, Gabby, was leave the house one day to go duck hunting. And and just this whole world opened up. You can tell by just what you're saying. Obviously, you're very passionate. And the amount of time we've been connected, I've seen it translated through your social media posts and your different work. And you had some interesting experiences in your life, I think, that did shape you, your career choices your love of waterfalling, if you're comfortable sharing um, kind of more about your background and, and how you moved into forestry, uh, would you be able to do that? Would you be comfortable sharing? Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable sharing it on a, on a brief point. I mean, when I, when I, when I shake hands and meet people, uh, it's probably pretty obvious. Uh, I've got scars on my face and on my body and on my hands, you know, and, and that, that stems from a, childhood event i was uh two weeks before my 16th birthday i was cleaning up I, I had a dog at the time that had absolutely scratched the hell out of the doors trying to get in the house and mama wanted me to go paint it i painted it cleaned up the paint brush the pilot light cut on ignited the gasoline fumes and uh, i spent the next six months uh, in a burn center uh, out of it intensive care unit and burn center 70 some odd surgeries later uh, down in Galveston, Texas, and uh, it was a long, long, long road to hoe. 
Uh, and you know, all these years later, it's been 40 something years. Not a, not a day goes by. I don't, I don't look in the mirror, or wash my hands that I don't, I don't know exactly who I am and where I come from. And, uh, I do remember being in that burn center, a wreck, uh, I had kind of come out of it a little bit, but I was still covered head to toe with, uh, bandages. I couldn't, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't stand out of that bed. I couldn't walk. I'd been laid up for six months and, uh, still had a lot of surgery to go at that point, but I never will forget watching the television and realizing it was Labor Day and, um, uh, and realizing too, that here I was 16 years old and for the first time and the best parts of my life since I'd been a little boy, since I'd been five or six years old for the first time in my life, I was not spending that day on a dove field near Inverness, Mississippi with my granddad. I swore if I ever, well, if I ever got out of that burn center, no matter what, I, I wasn't going to miss another opening day of dove season. And, um, and that's kind of how it started. You know, it, it's a, uh, life in so much where you start is where you end. And just, not getting too personal or mushy, but, you know, at, at 15, 16 years old, um, I was given a second chance when they brought me into the ER that night, uh, May 17th, 1982, that I was involved in that explosion. Uh, I later learned that I died that night. They had to uh, revive me with the shock paddles. Um, the, the, the medical staff was beside themselves. Uh, it was it was a it was a very seventy two percent second third degree burn. Uh, it became infected while in ICU, and they told my parents, you know, your son has an eight percent chance of living, ninety two percent probability for mortality, and uh, if he lives, he'll lose his right arm and both his legs. And uh, and from from that new beginning i started a second lease on life and uh for me uh how it shaped my life i I don't i don't really know how normal 15 16 17 year old kids go through high school and what their parents tell them at home My, my life at that age was anything but normal um but you know whereas a lot of kids may have been told hey you got to make good good grades in high school so you can go to college got to go to college so you can get a job i guess i guess my my focus on on that new that new second chance was more about creating a life than a living and uh i went to mississippi state university uh i was in the forestry and wildlife program and really young and idealistic with a second chance of life all i wanted to do was work in refuges and wear a brown uniform and make the world a better place. That's really and truly kind of where I, I felt like I, I needed to go. I ended up going to Mississippi State. I In the forestry program, I took the wildlife option. I stuck with it an extra year. I got a degree in undergraduate in wildlife management. I became a certified wildlife biologist, and uh, but went to grad school in bottomland hardwood silviculture, became a forester. And that was my toehold into federal government employment. Uh, I specialized in uh, bottomland hardwood restoration, uh, regeneration of, of bottomland hardwoods, and I took a job with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right out of college. And I never forget my boss asking me before I took that job. He said, "Are you sure you want this job, man? We've got ten thousand acres to reforest in the Mississippi Delta. These are very marginal, flood-prone, heavy clay soils we were we were planting." 
uh, in the next five years, Ramsey, are you sure you want this job? And I said, yes, sir, I want this job. It's what I do. Well, I left that job three years later, having been involved with 60,000 acres restoration. Uh, and the entire Arklamist Delta teamed out. We got involved with a, uh, a uh, uh, carbon sequestration company that funded a lot of reforestation uh, on-service land. It was a very rewarding, uh, very rewarding job, very rewarding experience. And uh, I left and spent the next 13 years with U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, I was telling you one time, you know, I, I'm, I do a lot of writing, a lot of creative writing. Uh, that's just the way of the world. You know, building a, a web page as substantial as getducks.com with 3,800 Google index pages now. Uh, and I wrote all the words. And, and matter of fact, one of my old professors called me one day and said, man, what are you up to these days? I said, you're not going to believe it. I write for a living. And I really kind of do, you know, writing emails and writing text and writing social media posts. And, and, and the writing I do today is very, very different than what got me through college and what got me through grad school and, and what launched me into my career because it, it was a very form of technical writing. And I think I told you this, Gabriella, uh, I got on assignment while I was at Fish and Wildlife Service. I was sent on assignment. It was supposed to be six weeks. I was going to draft. a. Uh, all I was going to do is draft an outline for a a document for Forest Service uh, on how to write management plans pursuant to a stewardship program they had, a $10 million stewardship program nationwide. Ended up working eight or eight or nine weeks up there in that office and, and completing that document. And um, I went I went just to see if it was still online the other day. Of course, it's still online. You know, I Googled uh, D. Ramsey Russell Jr. Forest Stewardship Program. And up comes this monumental massive, uh, technically written how to write forest management plans. Um, but that, that's who I was then. Uh, I, I, as I, as I got out of college and got into, uh, chasing ducks around the world, I had just taken a job with fish and wildlife. I'd been there maybe a year. I had a little leave time built up, saved a little money that I really didn't have to spend on such things. And I wanted to go to Canada I'd always wanted to go to Canada and shoot migrator Canada geese. I break break my grandfather. One of my most cherished possessions is a little small notebook, handwritten budgets and notes and stuff. And it was his Mississippi goose camp from back in the 40s where him and several of his buddies would go dig into sandbars on the Mississippi River for a week or two and hunt wild migrator Canada geese. Well, by the 70s, there weren't any migrator candidates coming to Mississippi. They were they were going they were all going up to Cairo, Illinois to shoot those birds. Well, now the birds hardly come to Cairo like they used to. That interior population has changed. And uh, but I always wanted to go and shoot Canada geese like I heard my granddad talk about. And I went to Canada. I booked a trip through a preeminent outfit at the time, and it was the biggest shit show uh, of a of a of a hunt I'd ever been a part of. It. It uh, began with a, a inebriated duck guide picking us up at 8 in the morning instead of 30 minutes or hour before daylight, and it went downhill from there. And uh, and I got back having spent all that money and been on an absolute terrible hunt, realized, man, I worked too hard for this. So I, the Internet was just kind of sort of getting started. The Internet was not then what it is today. But I did a little research. I went through the back of magazines. I started talking to the outfitters. I found a guy in Alberta, since retired, named Jeff Klotz. And uh, I went up there and hunted with him, brought four buddies. 
Next year, to eight to 12 buddies. Next year, with a bunch of buddies. And he called me out to drink cold beer in the shop with his staff. He said, Ramsey, I want you to be a booking agent for me. I said, Jeff, what the hell is a booking agent? I'm a forester with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And he laughed and said, this is how it works. And I came back. I said, well, I could probably sell a few more duck hunts. And I was doing some habitat consulting at a time. I was doing a lot of baseline reports for conservation agents at the time. And I came up with the idea that beyond the chat rooms, Facebook didn't exist back in these days, beyond the chat rooms uh, and my personal contact, I, maybe I could come up with a web page and I could market a little bit of my habitat services and uh, this duck hunt, this, this goose hunt up in Alberta. And that was the birth of getducks.com. It ran online for about a year and we were nobody. And it, um, we went and got a, actually incorporated in the year 2003 we're now 20 years in the business and i actually kind of ran that business part-time while working for u.s department of agriculture and then it just got it got it got to be where it, gabby it's like this if somebody if somebody's going to pay you for your services if you've got a client they deserve a client's deserve 100% of your attention, not half of it. Absolutely. They, they deserve 100% of your attention. And it was such, at the at the time, it seemed 2003, four, five, it seemed kind of normal. And a lot of my clients would say, now, what do you do when you're not doing this? Well, I'm a forester. I'm a biologist. And, and, and that's the way that industry was. And so, uh, long story short, my wife, who was the brains of the operation, we've now been married 29 years, uh, one day she came to me in the office where I was working and she said, you know, we had a long talk and we decided that I needed to do, I needed to focus on one or the other. I needed to be full-time get ducks or I needed to be full-time federal government. Well, the choice was easy. I didn't know what the, what the future held. So we held, she and I held hands together, jumped off a cliff in the pitch black dark, hoping there was water down beneath it to catch us. And uh, the first year was tough. I'm gonna tell you, coming out of federal government employment, where that paycheck hit the hit my mailbox every uh, every two weeks, and and to feed yourself was, was a very daunting task. But now, instead of having you know only forty or fifty hours a week to work part time on this thing, she and I had all week. We had 120 hours a week to work on it, and. Uh, and it, and it turned out, you know, we, we slowly but surely, once I was able to pour uh, the full time into clients and into finding hunts and into exploring and into building this thing right, uh, the, the rest became history. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it maybe kind of looks easy, but it was anything but easy. It was a very daunting and uh, challenging task to, to build this, uh, but we managed to build it. That's good. Yeah, I understand as someone who has a smaller scale business, what it entails, you know, having to move from thing, an industry you were working in for a while, then transitioning and then going into it. So how many years were you in the forestry service and also as a wildlife biologist? How many years I, was that? I worked, I, worked, uh, I worked 16 years. I think it was 16 years I worked for the federal government. I worked three years with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in refuges and three years uh, 13 years with U.S. Department of Agriculture. And, you know, it really wasn't a black hole. It, it, it's, uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed parts of both those jobs. I really enjoyed working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and gaining a, uh, a profound perspective of how 
refuges are managed, how the federal government works, how our migratory birds are managed, uh, coming into contact with the managers and the biologists and the bean counters. Uh, one, one of the, one of the most, uh, one of the funnest things I ever did uh, in my formal career back in those days was I, I went to banned waterfowl at a part of the. Uh, I've done that too, actually. Yeah, it. it I I, you know, this was, I, but I spent eight weeks up in Canada banding waterfowl uh, near the Quill Lakes and meeting with uh, our staff. Our little banding staff was comprised of a lot of the guys from uh, Patuxent, and I just started to gain this real big sense of what was going on. One of the coolest things I ever did, you know, uh, the supervisor I had at Fish and Wildlife Service, I was in refuges, uh, first at first as a forester, then as a refuge manager very briefly. But uh, he was a very good career builder. And I think the reason I ended up going to that assignment up in D.C. was because he recognized in me an ability for or, or saw in me a love and a passion and skill set for written and verbal communication. And he put me he put me on that path. Had I wanted to go to D.C. and do this kind of stuff, he opened those doors for me. I did not. I did not want to spend, you know, in a 30-year career, I did not want to spend eight of those years in traffic uh, going back and forth. Understandable. And uh, at least, you know, but but still, it was fun. And, and, and while I was there, uh, I really got walked through uh, what a great staff there was up there at the National Office of Forest Service that took an intern in and, and lined me out and gave me what I needed to do what I needed to do, but then took me from from ground zero, from from four men sitting at lunch brainstorming an idea to sitting around a couple of meetings and, and punching up a, a, a one-page summary pitching it to the to the national office and then walking it through Capitol Hill and trying to gain traction on how that's how a lot of these conservation programs make it through the system. And uh, it just, it gave me just a really, really good idea of how that worked. And then on the field side, you know, working in 24 counties of Mississippi, 40 U.S. Department of Agriculture, going out and meeting with landowners, looking at natural resources, the timber resources, the wetland resources, uh, going through the engineering of levees and dams and da 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 It just gave me this really nice working sense of wildlife management from ground zero through through the national office. And and now what I see now how I use a lot of that boring bureaucrat technical some sometimes experience is is how I process uh, going to these properties i mean gabby i now spend 250 to 300 days a year traveling and hunting and when i, I just got back for example uh, since i've seen you at, at safari club international you know i've been to mexico twice and the last time i the last just got back i, I was down in uh, 98 uh, new new province walking ground floor through a through a hunting program and, and i see I, I just you know go, going through the processes of all the different myriad aspects of what makes a hunt work and what makes it doesn't organizationally travel, uh, going through the the paperwork. The first thing I do when I show up with a foreign outfitter is ask to see documentation. I need to see hunting licenses. I need to see hunting contracts. I need to see UMAs front and back. I need to know uh, that they've got the paperwork in place. I need to know what the, the limits are for that area. I need to know if there's any species caveats. I need to know, about the import export, so it so it is going through a little of the paperwork process because the federal government's all paperwork. It's a lot of going through uh, the comparative analysis of 
what am I seeing here in this duck blind as compared to a thousand other duck blinds I've sat in today? What what am I seeing resource-wise? What am I seeing habitat-wise? Why are the birds coming in here? Why are the birds using this? Why are the different species coming in or coming out? You follow what I'm saying? It's, so it, it's really, it's like on the one hand, I, I feel sometimes like I wasted a lot of my life with that former career, but I continue to build on a lot of the, the skill sets and um, a lot of the little skills and a lot of the little processes that I use throughout my federal government career, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And actually, I want to correct myself. I didn't do a banding survey. I did a wing survey. These were oh. uh, uh, it was, oh gosh, 2018. One of my friends who was the digital director at Fish and Wildlife Service, rather Department of Interior, handled all the digital properties. Lovely person. Um, she took me along to it and she's like, yeah, learn how to do this. This is super cool. And you can, you know, blog about it. And I got to do it. These were parts of birds or ducks more specifically. They weren't alive, but it would be fun to do a banding adventure. I hope at some point, it's much like my goal with wanting to do a bear done study. There, uh, there, there are, there are banding, there are banding projects. Uh, some state people are off about it, letting the public handle the duck, but there are, there are a lot of banding projects uh, university related, uh, research related, uh, state related, federal government related. There are a lot of banding projects in the United States that need and want volunteers. Find one near you. You know, uh, like for example, there's one down in Louisiana uh, that I always go to this time of year. And, and it, it's even as a hunter, even somebody that's done it, I find so much personal joy in. The, the nets go off and the race, I'm in waders and I'm, I'm going as fast as I can like everybody else. And all of a sudden we're on our knees and, and the water, you know, is up to our chest and we're belt deep. And we're bent over and we're untangling very gently and very quickly and very delicately. And we're getting these little birds out of the net and we're putting them in safe places. And then we're back and we're starting to handle them and band them. And it, it, I find so much uh, reward in that. Just uh, And what I see a lot of is how those, those, Touching nature, whether you're a hunter or not, touching nature connects people to it. Whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter, it, it's a good way to interact with nature. Nothing connects me to to that resource like physically touching it. And I, I find it interesting that so many environmentalists quote, um, oh, who wrote uh, uh, Thoreau? Henry David Thoreau is such a quoted environmentalist. Yeah. On the greeny side, but but even in that book, which I read during my idealistic college days, he talked about, you know, one of the greatest conservation tools ever invented was an air rifle or a small bore rifle in the hand of a child that goes out like any kid with a BB gun and shoots a bird, picks it up and holds it and touches it. And, and you know, because children and people, they only know what they touch and they only love what they know. That's how it works, man. And uh, and and that's that's a leg up I think a lot of us hunters have. And I'll say this as 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 someone that's golly, there's people that's duck hunted a lot more than me. I've, I've been duck hunting now about thirty years, and there's people that have hunted a lot longer than me. But I there's few that have hunted as far and as much and as wide as I have. And the only thing if I would change at all about duck hunting, that all possible, would if there was somehow kind of way to make it a catch and release sport like fishing. Wouldn't it be awesome to go out and shoot a limit of matters and then after the hunt just unstring them and turn them loose? 
I, I think that would be a, a, a joy to watch those birds fly off. And I, I feel a little bit of that when I'm actually putting my hands on and catching those blue wing teal and those pintails and banding them and knowing that, that that little piece of metal on their leg, they're now a data point that's going to help us understand and better manage uh, our natural resources. It sounds, yeah, you know, I think whether you're directly involved, you hunt or don't hunt, but some of us have the luxury of admiring and also hunting because most of the time you're admiring, I feel, in my case too, because, you know, I live in an urban area and I see so much different kind of wildlife. I have I have like red tail hawks, golden eagles, I think more so bald eagles, not golden eagles. Maybe we have some golden eagles too here. Foxes, all these birds of prey, cardinals, blue jays, what have you, and deer, white-tailed deer, of course. And you have to appreciate it to understand, you know, what potential life you're going to take of those species that can be harvested. I'm not saying harvest cardinals or blue jays by any means or bald eagles because there was an incident recently with people in Nebraska were not here lawfully killing the bald eagle and cooking it and they had no idea about the illegality of doing so and that's that's really shameful that people are totally unaware of what happens and and what's law Uh, but you do have to admire i think that's what a lot of a misnomer that critics of hunting often have is these people don't care they're not embedded in this environment they don't understand their surroundings they don't care about the species but most of the time when you're going into the field no matter what style of hunting you're doing most of the time you're admiring you're having missed shots. You're not seeing the animals you're intending to target. And you take away from that at least an enjoyable experience of having seen something at minimum. And then a small component is taking the kill shot. That really is at the core of it. Even someone like me can surmise that as a fairly new hunter, you know, being under a decade in, involved in this, about six years involved in this. And Ramsey, I want to go back to your business, obviously, uh, getducks.com. Of the places you've traveled to in the business, what has been your favorite thus far? And then I also want you to answer what's a place you'd like to go to that you haven't been to with clients. That's a loaded question, and uh, it really truly is because when I say I like, I kind of say tongue-in-cheek as a joke when I ask, where's your favorite place to hunt? My favorite hunt's the next one. And uh, But but there really is a lot of truth to that. Some of of my favorite places I've hunted uh, are Argentina. Uh, it's an abundance of habitat, not so much hunting pressure. It's a lot of native habitat, a lot of marshes and wild kind of habitat that I, I really like to hunt, not these uh, more sterile environments we're accustomed to hunting here in the United States. Uh, one of the coolest places I hunt annually, it's not necessarily volume, it's not necessarily collector species, although it can be both, is a little country called Azerbaijan. Uh, I love it because... It's so fundamental. Uh, yes, they have mojos. Yes, they can use electronic calls. But beyond that, it's wooden skiffs and caulked with mud every morning so that it doesn't leak when you ride out. And you're push-pulling out into uh, a wilder area that's not really hunted so much like we hunt here. And you're chasing uh, just different species, uh, to include mallards and pintails and shovelers, and you're raising green wings and wigeons but also red-crested poachers. And and so it's just never knowing what that next species could be. I tend to really like it. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite places I've ever hunted, and I know we're going to talk about it in a little bit, is Australia. Uh, because on the one hand, it's so familiar, you know, that they the, the duck hunters in Australia hunt a lot like we do with the boats and the decoys and the calls and styles and the respect 
and the whole drama, the whole pageantry, I should say, that goes into a, a duck hunt. But at the same time, it's mind blowing. Like I, one of my most fondest memories was going into hunt Pacific black ducks in flooded timber. And we're talking about this ginormous, these very old growth flooded red gums that five or six grown men could hold hands and kind of hug together, just big trees. And, and the, I never, the, the place I'm thinking of was about a section, about, about 640 acres, about, about a square mile of flooded timber and walking out into this magical, unbelievably beautiful place calling the ducks like we do here, mack, 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 mack. Pacific black ducks pitching into the timber and uh, not another hunter there. And I remember Glenn asking me, well, Ramsey, if this were Mississippi or back home, how many hunters would be here? I'd go one behind every tree with hunting this good. And, um, and, and then, but then like we're walking out, like a lot of times when you're hunting flooded timber and swamps, you'll, you'll bust out a herd of deer that got in there to rest and so I bust out this herd of deer, and I hear them just charging through the water. And I look over and look, it's not white-tailed deer, it's kangaroos. You know, wow. these sulfur-crested cuckatoos feeding up in the and just making their noise and feeding up above us. It was just a very enchanting and magical and, like, otherworldly hunting experience. Mongolia, uh, which we don't run a lot of. It's a very put-together type hunt, you know, and it, it, Mongolia is the kind of place where – not much wetlands, but the staff is very organized, and they do stuff, but they don't duck hunt. There's 12 of them on staff. One of them has a pair of rubber boots. They point and say, there's the water. And we put our own plan together, and we hunt ourselves. And again, uh, the scenery and the cultural backdrop and, and the, the different birds that are coming in, the swan geese and the bar-headed geese and the, the, the shell ducks. One time we went way up, way up into this uh, – Drove six hours north to go scout a new area. It was too cold. The dirt, there was a few shell ducks there, and we couldn't find some of the species we were looking for. So we were going to back off and come back home, and, and there was an area where the runoff had this little ephemeral wetland, maybe a foot deep, little pool out there about five acres, maybe half that, full of mallards and pintails. And the way they, they grazed their land with, Oh my gosh, the, uh, the the cattle and the yak and the camels and uh, the sheep and the goats and I mean by the time everything comes through grazing it's just it, it's 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 as smooth as a dirt floor right and we were watching and we were going to leave the next morning anyway but I said you know I'd like to come here and try to hunt these birds and the guy was like well it's just mallard and pintail I go yeah but I bet those mallard and pintails have never heard a duck call or been hunted and how cool would that be and so we we. We went and bought some hay from our a herder. He know he, to this day I know he don't understand why why we were willing to give him six bucks bail, and we used those we used those those hay bales to kind of cover ourselves and hide on the edge of this bare dirt wetland. We put our decoys out and I put a mojo and our host, our Mongolian host, backed way up the mountain and watched us that morning. And as he drove up to pick us up, I stood up. We shot about a dozen birds and I stood and waved him over. And when he came up, he explained, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, those ducks, would, I see them coming in off the mountain, and they'd get right above your position, and they would drop straight in. And I pull my call out. I go, whack, whack, whack. And his eyes got big. He goes, oh, my gosh. I've never seen that. And, and then he started looking at the birds, and he goes, 
hundreds of birds came into the spot. What are the odds that y'all would shoot only drakes? And I said, but Gala, that's that's the whole sport of it. We're not, we're not here just to eat. I mean, we're going to eat these birds for dinner tonight. We did cook them that night. But I said, you know, it's all about the art of it all. And and that goes a little bit back to where you were asking earlier about, you know, some of the different aspects. To me, it's really not the place, uh, Gabby. It, it's not the, it's not a spot on a geographical map. I, I've there's a lot of cool places and a lot of good memories. I've got a little bitty tiny game room slap full of dead ducks, and I long since learned that I'm really not a species collector. I'm an experience collector, and when I Start telling a story about that bar-headed goose, or I start telling a story about that uh, different uh, bird, it always comes back to the people and the place, never about the bird itself. It's where that bird took me. Uh, I've said this a million times, and I can't think of a better description. You know, it's like walking through the pages of a 1970 or 80s era National Geographic magazine, but with a shotgun and waders. That's what... I really get into, and 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 I and I've learned too that you know since COVID, especially the year before COVID, I've started doing these massive United States and North American road trips. This year is going to take me in a little black pickup truck from Mississippi clear to British Columbia, Oregon, Washington, California, and back. Uh, but I do that regularly, and and really and truly, while I hunt with a lot of my outfitters when I'm traveling, what I really like to do is hunt with you hunt with him, hunt with her on Papaw's Back 40. Right here in the United States, there's such diversity of species and habitats and hunting styles and calling styles. It's just like you keep peeling off all these different layers. So on one hand, we're all duck hunters, but on the other hand, we do things subtly different. And that's what I really find myself most attracted to. The older I get, get is that, the process, the actual hunt, the hunting, the, the scenery, the habitat, the species. And when we get down to species, you know, one thing I dislike about a lot of the countries that I hunt is that nowhere else in the world, except maybe Australia, do, do they have the profound hunting culture. We American duck hunters, because of competition, because of difficulty, because of finite limits, we, we have elevated the art. Uh, we have elevated all the aspects of duck hunting to art form. The camo, the ammo, the decoy placement, the, the, the accoutrements, the calling style, the duck calls themselves, how we hunt, how we hide. You know, to where a lot of us, it's not about going out and shooting a duck. Whereas in a lot of parts of the world, they like to just pass shoot. They're going to shoot ducks. They just stand here when the duck flies over, they shoot them. To a real duck hunter, that ain't going to cut it. I, I want to own that duck. And it goes back to all those years ago as a very young man in Arkansas. I go in, I go with my fraternity brother. We're in the flooded timber. And my eyes get as big as, as dinner plates when those ducks come through the timber and start flitting around, pop, 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 trying to find a landing place in the decoys. Boom, I shoot. And and, and uh, the old man, the patriarch, Mr. Boyd, he goes, now, now son, we don't shoot till I call the shot. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I did it again. And and very fatherly, he said, son, let me explain the game to you. Those are wild ducks that got the whole world to fly into. I want to land them. I want them to believe that 
my calling and my decoys are the real thing, and we want them to land. We want to own them. And then when they get up and fly away, we'll shoot a few. Ray Charles could shoot a few ducks flying away here. That's not the sport for us. It's it's landing those ducks and owning those ducks and watching those ducks. And, and you know, to be that kind of salesman, to grab a wild duck that has been hunted from Canada to Mississippi or Arkansas, he knows what's what. Now, I've got, I've got to elevate my skill in shooting and hiding and calling and all the different fundamentals. I've got to take it to art form because, you know what, I do want to own that duck. I want that duck close. I want to see his eyeballs. I want to see him flapping. I want to hear. I want to hear his wings flap. And and that's what that's what that's what the world of duck hunting is all about. And in doing that, it 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 you can't help but develop a relationship. A lot of people that do not hunt or that anti-hunt, I've been asked the question: If you love ducks, how can you kill them? Well, kill them is a part of hunting. You know, I'm not only feeding my family, I'm feeding my culture, I'm feeding my tradition, I'm feeding my spirit. But it's not just the meat, it's the relationship with this wild animal. I'm talking his talk, I'm, I'm fitting into his world, I'm, I'm immersing myself neck deep, eyeball deep if I fall in, into his environment. And, and someone like myself that's chasing them all around the world it's repeated over and over with all the different species and all the different habitats and all the different nuances. But it, it consumes us. And, and i got to bring up this good point. You know, just got off the phone uh, with a conversation. I was talking to a biologist with Delta Waterfowl, and he was telling me about one of the second or third largest landowners in North America owns about 250,000 acres in Prairie, Canada. But it's all farming. And they pride themselves and they brag on having gotten rid of all the wetlands and all the fence rows and all the brush and all the rocks and all this to where they've, just, they've got a 250,000-acre sterile agricultural environment. How can somebody love ducks and kill them? And my explanation for that, Gabby, is, is I love them so much. I'm willing to put my time and my money like every other duck hunter. Like all the, especially the landowners, the managers, the biologists, we love them so much. We're willing to put our time and our money into habitat conservation to create this massive principle from which we can go and extract a little bit of interest to sustain ourselves and sustain our hand-me-down tradition. The scary thought is that there's only 6% of us in, in America, and if you look at the monumental habitat loss that has happened, that, that it's more than the six percent of us can can foot the bill for. Now Ramsey wants to preserve wetlands for ducks, so I can go shoot a few. Wetlands affect everybody. There's already predictions. There's already predictions that in the year 2050, some overwhelming percent of humanity is not going to have access to clean water, potable water. Wetlands affect everybody, Gabby. And and and, he, and now, now let's, I'm going to jump real quickly over into Australia. What scares me about the cessation of hunting in Australia is, is buddy, I'm going to tell you what, it's, it's, I'm starting to sense defeat in a lot of my associates in Australia. 
They don't have scientific surveys. They don't have credible biological indices of what they have in terms of wetlands, of what they have in terms of habitat, of what they have in terms of waterfowl populations or harvest, like we do here in the United States and North America. They'd have none of that. So in the absence of science, it's full emotion run, run awry. And they, by God, want to shut down duck hunting. My question to the antis of Australia, what then? Because here in North America, 6% of us hunt. We're the only ones talking about habitat. We're the only ones talking about wetlands loss. We're the only ones cognizant that pintail are struggling in, in light of landscape. We're the only ones. You, you, people that, that are sitting in cities or sitting in buildings or sitting in jobs content to, in their imagination that, 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 that the main hunter's not killing the wildlife and they'll continue to persist or living in a fairy tale. Man, there are 8 billion people on earth right now. Nothing is going to manage itself. Nothing is going to just self-regulate like back during caveman days. Nothing. Nothing is going to just exist like it is forever. It's going to require passionate and thoughtful and scientific management of that resource. That's where the hunters come in. You know, when you start talking to a lot of state biologists and DNRs, their budgets are are funded by hunters. And some of the money coming in from federal and state grants and stuff, hunter-derived, hunter firearm-derived, ammo-derived, sporting gear-derived income. But it's not just ducks and deer and turkeys that are being managed under those budgets. It's the songbirds. It's the fisheries habitat. It's, it's, it's everything. It's the pollinator programs. It's all being funded by hunters. So my question to the people that support getting rid of Pittman-Robertson, that support a cessation of hunting in Australia, that, that support a cessation of hunting in America, what then? Who is going to pay? Who is going to pay for wildlife and habitat to be managed? Because right now, only 6% of us are doing it. And that's a scary thought. When when you look at the last 20 or 30 years, the the unprecedented amount of habitat loss in the United States alone. Project that another 20 years. What is there left to even go out and appreciate other than a zoo or a park? You know, I, I think we're at a real pivotal moment right now. I think that we hunters are very pivotal in the future of wildlife. We absolutely are. And that's why you're involved in groups like Safari Club International. Could you speak to why you're so impassioned about their mission, why you're involved with them, and also their fight to help combat what's happening in Australia? They are, and everywhere. You know, I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm active in Ducks Unlimited. I'm active in Delta Waterfowl. I'm active at uh, state levels. I'm, I'm active anywhere I can be. You know what I'm saying? My, I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll say this, uh, Somewhere around my 45th or 46th, but I was having spending a birthday by myself. Uh, I was 10 years out of federal government. I was reaping the bounty. And I, I was enjoying the fruits of my labor, and I was down in Argentina. I don't hunt in the afternoons. I was sitting on the front porch, probably nursing a cold beer, smoking a cigar or something, you know, but I was sitting there collecting my thoughts by myself. And, and I remembered 
how being a young man going into wildlife, why I went into wildlife, very idealistically wanting to leave the world a better place. I love to duck hunt and I love to hunt, you know, a hook and bullet generation. But how going to college and going to grad school and going to co-op and how everything, we, we, and, then, and then, then going to grad school and then transitioning into fish and wildlife service, how it all just seemed to connect, connect the dots. You know, but now how sitting here now, surely, because I do believe in divine purpose, but surely God didn't put me on this path so that my headstone can read, here lies Ramsey, a million dead ducks. There's got to be a greater good. Right. And, and talking to some clients of mine that became good friends one day, they said, Ramsey, there is a greater good. Your, your storytelling and, and your podcast and your picture showing and social media, you're not just showing dead ducks, man. You're, you're bringing you're bringing the the worldwide waterfowl conservation initiative to other people. You're gaining a perspective of these processes, and and I don't you know we don't think that people are just seeing you as, as a as a conduit of going and killing ducks. But I think they see the experience. I think they they they're beginning to sense your passion for projecting this. I mean you know idealistically, those ducks are my grandkids. I'm just I'm barring a few of them. But it's important to me that my kids and grandkids continue to have this relationship with wild animals in wild places. And that's going to take effort. You know, there's 8 billion people on Earth, 40%. 40% of humanity on Earth cannot even walk into a kitchen and turn on a, a stove. You know, they're, they're building fires in the front yard, which tells me they're, they're still living in bushmeat, which is whatever in nature they can get to eat. And uh, that, that's a scary thought. You know, hunting is conservation. Regulated hunting is conservation. Unregulated hunting and wildlife use is not. And and it, it, I think it's all tied together. You know, we start here in our backyards, but there, it's also a global initiative. You know what I'm saying? You, t- you take migratory bird management, for example. Gabby, you know, a, a wild mountain duck or a speckle belly goose. You know, those birds are, are way up north, and and uh, the geese are, are nesting up in the Arctic, and they're coming down into, into northern Canada, southern Canada, across that border, down all the way down to Louisiana. It it, it, re- it requires a continental approach, you know. So if we're going to focus just in North America, let's focus there. But what I see in this world, you know, is in the same time. 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago now, about the same time that Australia banned goose hunting in the absence of scientific survey, purely emotional, purely political, the Netherlands banned goose hunting. Just so happens the Queen of Netherlands is Argentine. Coincidence? I think not. Now you've got anti-hunters in Australia kicking up. You've got anti-hunters in Argentina trying to take other things away. You've got anti-hunters here in North America you and I have talked about. You've got anti-hunters everywhere. When you start looking at a country like Australia, there are a lot of anti-hunters in Australia. There is a lot of anti-hunt funding coming from Australian anti-hunters. But that ain't the end all be all. A lot of their funding and support is coming from the strangest places like South Africa, the UK, the Netherlands, and America. These anti-huntings and the people that disagree with hunting at all are connected in a way that we can't even imagine. 
you know, we hunters are all kind of kind of uh, discombobulated as compared to the organization being brought at a lot of different levels throughout the government. You know, when you start talking about import-export laws, man, Humane Society got their tentacles into a, a, a Fish and Wildlife Service director who turned over all the wildlife declarations to Humane Society. What would Humane Society, what do they need and want with the data on values and animals and numbers that hunters are bringing into America, what possibly value could 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 benefit hunting and conservation from that data being handed over? That's a scary thought. You know, what I'm saying some of the conversations you and I had at convention, uh, you know, we regulated hunting as conservation, and we can look at the benefit cost models of the dollars coming into the systems coming into management. Ooh. But if you got a bill, if you got a bill to get rid of Pittman Robertson Act and you got anti-hunters jumping in, there's a reason. They don't like that benefit cost model. They don't no. want to be a benefit financially. They don't want that financial relevance. They don't want that commodity value. That's why Australia has for years disavowed people from bringing ducks out. Can you believe that? Yeah, because mm-hmm. because and I walked all the way through the system. I went through the parliament, through the hunter-friendly parliament, through Field and Game Australia, through the different channels, paid for the export permit, went through the local tax terms, did everything by the book, and it got down to a to a secretary of agriculture signature. She ain't ever gonna sign it because she won't get reelected if she did, because that would give commodity value to that resource. That's not what anti-hunters want. They they don't and I commodity value assigning a value to a wild duck the same as you would corn or tomatoes or cotton or pine lumber it, I know it sounds a little bizarre but it's the truth there is commodity value in the same way that humanity's recreational interest has created a multi billion dollar industry around NFL football that's hunting today you know and 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 politicians the only thing relevant to politicians is what money. So that's where that's where our spending and, and our, our time and our money and the value, that's that's the relevance of hunting in today's world. And and we're having to fight tooth and nail to even keep that. It's 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 very daunting times. <coughs> it is, but there is some glimmer of hope. There was actually, according to the US Fish and Wildlife Service, one point six billion up a hundred million from last year that was allotted to the state wildlife agencies for conservation, largely stemming from guns and ammunition, excise taxes, licenses, and the like. So people are spending more money, but they still are very disconnected from the process. I think educational efforts are still being done from groups like SEI, people like me, like you, anyone who has a platform to showcase this, but we still have a lot of work to do on that front. But the proof is in the pudding, the money is there. And I think once that's demonstrated and the alternative kind of pay model that they're proposing wouldn't obviously be able to recoup the same amount of money. I think that's what we can present before the public, uh, especially to the 80% we discussed on your podcast as well. And speaking of reaching new audiences, especially the future generation of hunters, because there are a lot of people aging out from hunting. That's been a big complaint, especially pre-COVID. And there are newer hunters. Plenty of us are interested I'm interested. I'm an unusual case. I I like these activities and I have no intention of stopping. It's just a matter of finding the right opportunities and going more. 
but we do have a little trouble. I think overall reaching people is in the urban areas, but it's not impossible. There are different programs, field to fork, more immersion programs, things of that sort. But what has worked for you, Ramsey, in terms of reaching millennials, Generation Z? Is it through your business? Is it through the podcast? What has worked for you and what do you think will work for the industry at large? I, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. It's um, I work on a lot of different platforms. And, you know, it, it's daunting to just put yourself out there. I'm telling you, I put, I, for an old guy, and I'm an old guy for social media, I put myself out there and be careful what you wish for. Cause you invite all kinds of crazy. And, uh, in addition to, to large, but I think, I think social media does work. The, the podcast work and, and, and really just, you know, a lot of my road trips and just being out and making personal contact with individuals, uh, because I may be in Iowa or Washington or New York with some hunters, but it puts me into contact with others also. And, uh, I don't know. I think you just gotta gotta keep going and putting yourself out there. That that's just it. Too much too much of the hunting movement, pro hunting movement. You know, myself especially. I, I find myself. You know, social media. The algorithm is great because I get to meet people like yourself. But but you're a part of my echo chamber. You know, algorithms create echo chambers, uh, and we've got to get beyond our sphere of influence and into that eighty percent. You know, it's really. The, the anti-hunters, to me, uh, are really kind of a small component. I'm not, I'm not saying they're, they're small. I'm just saying because they're 10% of them, and, and they're, they're, they're vocal, and they're funded, and, buddy, they the squeaky wheel that seems to always get the grease. But really and truly, it's that 80%. How do we get the non-hunters that are neither anti-hunters nor hunters, how do we get them involved into some of these more complex programs that don't derive immediate benefit to them wetlands conservation habitat conservation translates into ducks i get to go out this duck season and shoot some with my kids great ramsey benefits how do how do you how do you how do you take that habitat conservation and assign a value worth putting time and money towards to a non-hunter that that that's that's the million dollar question you know and and i think a lot of us are all in a in a pitch black dark room walking around trying to find a light switch, you know, to, to, to change that. I don't know, Gabby. I just, I don't know. It's frustrating. You know, um, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was, um, and I just had a thought, but I was up in Canada hunting, uh, this year with some friends and an old outfitter. And, uh, he heard my road trip. He heard where I'd been here. I was in late October hunting with him. It'd been, early September since I'd left the house and I was jumping around and I was going out here and I was going here and here and I'm going to make myself to Vermont. I was going to go to Maryland. I'm going to come back over to Illinois and Missouri and be home for Thanksgiving. And he, and he, he blurted out, he goes, what are you dying of cancer? I said, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, because man, I'm living on that second chance. That, that, that's a lot of wind in my sails. And I just want to see it all while it's here to see a, a very small, uh, I'm a you know a duck hunter is a positive person. You've got to be as a southern duck hunter. You've got to be an optimist. When when we haven't had a cold front in ten days, when the weather's stale, when the ducks are stale, when it's fixing to rain, you still get up, pull on your waders, and you go duck hunting. I'm gonna shoot ducks today. You're going with a great mindset. That's just our mindset. And uh, but but I do wonder sometimes if we're not walking through the end of an era. 
you know, with the habitat loss so monumental, with so many uh, so many deaths by a thousand cut facing us around the world. You know, if 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 Australia, if Victoria Province falls this year, the rest of the country is going to fall like dominoes. And emboldened by the win, the anti-hunters are going to start directing their time and their funding elsewhere. We know, you know, you could articulate, you could talk for five hours about the 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 many ways that anti-hunters and the anti-hunting movement, or even the non-hunters that don't like shotguns going off in their backyard at six o'clock in the morning, you know, want to to marginalize hunting and fishing in America. You know, I'm passionate about why I want it to persist, but there, for a lot of different reasons, you know, I, I wonder where will this be in 20 years? Where will we be in 20 years? You know, and, and it, it doesn't look good unless the tide changes. It, it just, I, I don't see how it can. And so a small part of what, of, of, what I'm doing is beyond going out and shooting and, and, and guiding hunts and doing this kind of stuff and organizing these hunts. I'm trying to document it. You know, I, I look at my, my social media as a blog. I look at my podcast as a blog. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's all transcribed and archived uh, and, and put on Get Duck. So for as long as the Internet exists, these conversations about hunting and conservation and species and places continue to exist. You know, uh, we've got a profound duck hunting culture here in North America. But what's so wild is when you go to Azerbaijan and Pakistan and some of the most far-flung places you'd ever imagine, you find yourself birds of a feather flocking together with, you know, different colors and race and creeds and religions and, and, um, and, and accents and languages. But it doesn't matter. In a duck blind... And that time, we're all just duck hunters, and we get it. And and just that 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 love and that passion for these birds, and what they do for us individually, and as and as a form of humanity, is they bring us together in this duck place, and we get to share the, the coolest times and connect with other people in other places. And the, and the world, in that sense, really is a lot smaller than you think. As to where I'd like to go that I haven't been, uh, Southeast Asia, Gabby. But, you know, 20 years into it now, we – oh, there's questions you've got to ask. You know, it, it, I've been invited to go places. Well, I've got to ask the questions. Is hunting legal? Are the species endangered? Are the species legal? Is firearm possession legal? Is ammo possession legal? And right now, for a lot of those different reasons, Southeast Asia – Seems to be a pretty tough nut to crack. I, I don't know that there really is even duck hunting over there anymore. Um, so those are places I'd like to go. One place that I might could see myself going one day. Um, used to be an old man named Charles Arn. Way before, when I was just getting into this business, he was a, a booking agent. He was a big guy, and I, he and I became friends over the years. He's He's now deceased. But he calls me up one day and he says, Ramsey, that's a place I never never tracked down that you need to track down and find. And he said, I'm just going to throw it on your radar because I'm too old to do it anymore. So where's that, Charles? He says, Pakistan. I go, Pakistan? He goes, Pakistan. Well, I tracked it down and I went and it was amazing. You know, we think of Pakistan as looking like Afghanistan mountains, but that Indus River cuts right through the middle of that country. It's a major corridor. 
And I found myself in Pakistan a few years ago, and it was amazing. I want to go back one day uh, j- just to film it and take more pictures and more documents. It was just an amazing experience with amazing people. I came back with a lifetime full of stories. But a spot that I haven't been yet that I want to go, this goes back to a, a college buddy inviting me. He, he was a Turk. He's from Turkey. He was one of our grad students in the Hardwood Project there at Mississippi State University. And he would go duck hunting with us. His wife was a very good cook. He'd bring food. He was the one guy out of all my buddies that would hang back with me. We'd pluck all those ducks on the halves. His wife would do wonders with them. And uh, one day he called me up and says, I want you to come to Turkey and come hunting with me. We're going to hunt at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, about 250 miles from Syria. And I was a little worried because I don't know if you remember that David Pearl video way back when, you know, when they, he was one of the first people to become decapitated on YouTube. And uh, he's like, no, no, it won't be that. You won't have that problem. You'll be perfectly oh, Daniel safe. Pearl. Yes. I just yeah, want was killed by terrorists. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I just want to show you my country. And we set it up. I was going to go. And then 9-11 happened. And that pretty much put us way off the drove me off a train so that would be an area just to go and hunt a wetland system that moses floated down my gosh how cool would that be there's another area um i want to hunt in this world and i I, but it doesn't really exist there and therein lies a problem but you know i do want to go to egypt um i do want to hunt the nile river and while i'm there i do want to tour the Valley of the Kings for a week. I'm into that kind of stuff. But the Nile River runs north and way south of there in Sudan. You've got human antiquities that are older even than Egypt. And it's, you've got the White Fork and the Blue Fork of the Nile River. And in between them is a vast, a vast delta. And I'd like to go there one day. I don't know how to do it because there's really not anybody over there doing it. And it can be a little bit of a dangerous part of the world, depending on who you ask. But that, that's a spot of the world I think I'd like to go. And, and you catch a lot of Eurasian overlap with African overlap in terms of species. But I think that going all the way back to kind of the absolute cradle of humanity, I think that'd be a pretty cool place to go experience and shoot some ducks. You know, kind of go through that natural geographic page with a shotgun and waders. That's an area I'd like to go visit one day. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. To visit that corner of the world. I've always wanted to visit Egypt and see the pyramids of Giza and the Valley of the tombs. I know it's probably a little different from, from where you were describing, but that whole area is interesting. And I haven't been able to think about hunting abroad. I want, I need to hunt uh, for ducks specifically all over the country more. I've only done, like I told you, a little bit in the Kuratik sound, but Ramsey, we've covered a lot of ground here. Where would you like my listeners to connect with you, learn about your work, follow you on social media? Please dispense all the links if you can. Yes. Uh, Instagram at Ramsey Russell, get ducks. We've got a podcast ourselves. Uh, y'all go check out Gabriella Hoffman, who she has a lot of interesting light on how she speaks to uh, 80%. Uh, that our, our podcast is duck season somewhere. The name of our webpage is getducks.com, and careful, you may lose yourself in there. It's a lot of content. But that's, that's how people get in touch with us 
Gabriella. And uh, those are the three best ways to get in touch with us. Excellent. You've been wonderful to have on the podcast. I appreciate you cross-pollinating with me here. And I wish you success with upcoming hunts. And I hope you can come down or rather more eastward my way. And maybe we can hunt uh, that area I was telling you about and go to my friend's restaurant. You need to have them on your show at minimum and some of my friends from Florida. That that uh, the the Curatick within the United States, there's still a lot of places I want to hunt, and that is that is uh, foremost on the east coast of somewhere I want to hunt is that that Curatick Sound area, beautiful, uh, way out there on the on the uh, eastern side of Virginia, and uh, and it's going to happen. Uh, I've got some friends out there, so what we'll do is get you in a duck blind with us and uh, kind of go through their oystering industry. And then go visit that restaurant. It, it's a tremendous amount of culture out there. You know, when the world shut down because of COVID, it was good and bad. I was supposed to be home for, I don't know, two months, which was the longest stretch of time I would have been home in the past, in the preceding five years. Ended up being home for two years, getting kind of bored. And, uh, and I just realized there was a lot of the United States I'd not yet seen. That's what really kicked off the the North American tour we've been doing the past few years. And, uh, man, I'll leave home on September 9th when till season opens. I'll be back for Thanksgiving. I, I take off again and I'm back home for Christmas. And, uh, and plus and minus convention season, I just keep on rolling and, and trying to find all these little nuances and places and exploring these little out of way places. And right now I need to hunt. I need to shoot a duck in Pennsylvania Virginia, West Virginia, and Oregon. And I'll have all 49 states under my belt. And uh, not to say I'm going to stop doing road trips because there's so much. It's like every time you, by about time you think you've seen and done it all and seen every little kind of nook and cranny of, of duck hunting just here in North America that exists, something else happens. And uh, and I'm just, I'm pulled into it. There's a lot of very historical areas and, and just a lot of amazing duck hunters and people and stories to see yet and uh so count on it gabby i'm gonna, I'm gonna come see you excellent yeah and you, maybe you're there for the for the when i kill my first duck in virginia uh, that would be fun no we'll plan on something and i need to connect you to my friends in florida who do duck ranching as they like to call it they they've promised to invite me down to florida sometime this upcoming season a long ways away from now what it seems like but you have to talk to the duck hunters in Florida too, the the Florida gladesmen who are phenomenal, good friends of mine. They've I would love given to. me a lot of opportunities too. Yeah, thank, and helping me with my filming. Gabby, thank you very much. I've I've enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on, Ramsey. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media: Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.